Well, welcome once again to Voice of Reason Radio. Your hosts, Chris Honholtz and Richard Story, joining you on this February 5th, 2022. Welcome once again to our program. We are so grateful to have you with us. I always want to start this off at the beginning, because I always forget if I don't. <laughs> we are part of the Christian Podcast community, and if you are looking for more, uh, more biblical-oriented podcasts to add to your listening library, really encourage you to go check it out. Always want to encourage you, by the way, to check out our website, slavetothekeng.com. That's where you can get signed up to follow all our uh, new additions to the site, be it new episodes, new articles, or any new information. Plus, it has our social media and contact page. And additionally, uh, it has our... our uh, suddenly, I can't think. This is what happens, Rich, when we take a week off because things went sideways last week. It also has our Patreon link, and it also has the store link to doctrineandlife.co where you can find... Uh, t-shirt if you are interested in helping support the program those are two ways that you can do so all right i think i set a record for getting that out okay i think i thought I got that almost out in 30 seconds except that i tripped over my own tongue <laughs> so we tend to take way too long i'm just looking at it sometimes we take way too long to get that information out so i'm gonna try i was trying to tighten it up this time so uh, i wanted to get that out to you uh, you guys please please go check those out please Get in contact with us, sign up for those things. And like I said, if you can help us uh, support the program, we'd always appreciate that. But more than anything, always be praying for the show. That's the most important uh, way you can support. Uh, glad to be back with my brother Rich this week. Last week we did have kind of a plan and then it kind of went sideways because both Rich and I ran into not even major emergencies, just things that needed to be addressed. And uh, so we put a, a rerun episode up there. Thank you for your patience uh, in doing so. Thank you for uh, continuing to still listen. And even when we're sharing ones that are, are from the past, I know some of you, you're new listeners and uh, you don't always get to hear the stuff from, you know, now almost six years ago. I can't believe we're doing almost six years here. Uh, in fact, it's a little over two months now, Rich, two and a half months. I think we'll be at the six year mark. Uh, that's, that's crazy. That's a really long time. Don't you think? Well, for a, average life of a podcast i think that's like we're in the old old age we're old men now with gray hair <laughs> and i i am literally anyway but as <laughs> this far is as true. podcasting goes i think i don't know what the average length of time a podcast stays on the air but i know at this point we have far exceeded the <laughs> average number of months or years well i think if i think if you compare it to someone like say James White, everybody's below the mark. He's been doing it for what forty years now, in some in some capacity or another. But uh, yeah, it's six years. I mean, coming up on six years, that's just been an amazing run. And uh, if God allows us to keep going, we're going to keep doing it. So thank you all for continuing to support that and be part of the voice of voice of reason radio listening audience. We we couldn't do this without you. I mean, God God is the one that this is for. We seek to glorify Him. That's our always most important thing. But we hope in some small way that we can edify the saints. So thank you for being a part of that. And we're going to continue to do this as long as you'll listen. So Rich, how you doing this week, brother? Well, brother, as I always say every week, better than I deserve. Amen. Because, now, I'm going to add the because part to this. <laughs> I'm better than I deserve because I am imputed with a righteousness Righteousness, not of my own, but the righteousness of Christ. Amen. He saved me, and I have assurance of that salvation because nothing or no one can rip us away 
from the Father's hand. Amen. And I know in this day and age, a lot of people are suffering. A lot of people have loved ones or family members or friends that are suffering from sickness or something else. I noticed the other day going through social media feeds, it was like almost every other post, someone was speaking about someone else they knew that was either in the hospital or going through this or that. And it just seems like that right now, I don't know if people are just sharing and talking about it more than in the past or what it is, but it just seems like that is a topic and an issue many people are having to deal with in this day and age. And as Christians, as those truly saved in Christ, that have truly been granted the gift of justification and are in the process of sanctification, let me make that clear, those are two distinctly different things. Justification is a one-time thing. Sanctification is a progressive undergoing by God and us. Justification is by God, through God, for God, in Christ Jesus alone, period. And that is the foundation of the gospel message. But as Christians, when we hit these bumps and rocks and potholes and sickness and suffering and all these things that we see going on, we have got to remember we are still children of Christ. All of his promises are for us. Our foundation in our hope is the foundation, which is Christ. Now, you sent me a quote this week, Mm -hmm. and it's really the basis of tonight's episode, but we're not only going to discuss that quote, we're actually going to look at the quote in the context in which it was written, which I don't know I've ever heard of many other people ever doing, (laughs) and I'm not saying that we're the first, but we're actually going to take this quote by J.C. Ryle and actually look at it in the context it was written, because more times than not, I see people quoting good, solid scriptural quotes by godly men, especially old dead guys, but we never really know where that quote came from. Yeah. So we're going to kind of address that tonight, and if you and if the listeners haven't figured out, I kind of led into <laughs> the topic. But I, if you take nothing else away from this episode, and I say this, and this is only for true born-again mm-hmm. believers in Christ, because the hope in Christ and the promises in and from Christ are only for those who are truly saved. Amen. And if you're not truly in Christ, and if you do not know if you are in Christ or not, go to the Word of God, read, study, and pray that He reveals it to you one way or the other. Truly examine yourself to make sure you're actually in the faith, because the hopes from and in Christ are for only those He has chosen to save and give the gift of salvation to. Now, with that said, brother, go ahead and share with our listeners the quote that you sent me. Yeah, I saw this. Um, somebody had shared it on social media in a couple of places. I think where I saw it was on Twitter. And this is a quote from J.C. Ryle. <coughs> Excuse me. And it says, you know, and he, it says he, meaning God, knew what we were before conversion, wicked, guilty, and defiled. Yet he loved us. He knows what we will be after conversion, weak, erring, and frail, yet he loves us. And, Rich, the reason I sent that to you as as a topic for this week is that right there just was a a balm to my soul. You know, every one of us, as you said, are facing so many struggles as of late. Mm 
And, you know, we talked about this in our episode on suffering just a couple weeks ago, that God uses these times, uses these uh, issues to conform us to the image of Christ, that he, you know, that we, as you say, we're justified, we're made righteous in him, but we're also sanctified, we're set apart for his holy, his holy work. And he uses that and conforms us to the image of Christ. And you know, just continues to use those times to cause us to cling tightly to him. And one of the things that I don't think we often talk about, at least on the more conservative side of things, and it, and we'll talk about this a little bit too, something I put in our show notes, is I think we don't, it's not that we're afraid to talk about the love of God, but in our efforts to want to emphasize what all of Scripture says about repentance, about sin, about holiness and righteousness in the life of a Christian, there is a tendency to maybe lean more to that side than to discuss about how deeply we are loved by God. And we, and like I said, we, we can talk about that as to, as to why I think part of the reason for that is. But this this quote, and then you know, you found the the uh, section that this is in in uh, in J. C. Ryle's commentary on Mark chapter fourteen, and there's a full paragraph in that that I can read. But that when I saw that, it's like, wow, I needed to hear that. That well, oh, go ahead. Before you get any farther, sure, sure. Um, you're not al- you're not alone. And especially in today's age where there's so much heresy and so much, mm-hmm. so many apostates abounding and so much taught and preached in American evangelicalism that is contrary to the Word of God, we have kind of veered hard one way to where we seem to constantly be defensive and trying to point people about repentance and faith and you know, stand our ground, so to speak, and mm-hmm. and preach on these issues and defend the faith. But we have forgotten about those within that are actually within the true body of Christ that are suffering, that are going through trials and tribulations, that are facing hardships. And we can never forget the promises that Christ gives to us and the, and the example Christ set for us when it comes to those times. Mm-hmm. And we, we tend to, like you were talking about, and I, I see it constantly, especially on Twitter, we lean hard one way mm-hmm. going towards the defense of the gospel without reassuring those that are truly saved and, and reminding them of the promises that are theirs in Christ because they are in Christ yeah. themselves. And I saw someone post something the other day and I don't remember if it was about this quote or another one, but it was someone I consider a sister. And basically, the and I don't remember the comment verbatim, but it was something to the essence of finally something encouraging to remind me mm-hmm. that Christ does love me. And I, I get the impression that, that this particular person has been so bombarded with the defense of the faith that she rarely saw anyone talking about the promises and the hope that we truly have in the faith, if that makes any sense. No, I, I think that's, it makes a lot of sense. It's the same way we, when we were talking about suffering, we've, we have this, and I think part of it is a cultural thing, 
we have this sense that suffering is this foreign thing that should never happen to us. And we never really look at it as God's good and perfect gift to conform us to Christ. And so when we talk, we, we, it's kind of one of those things that we talk about it, but maybe not in a way that it, 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 that it comforts and that it reestablishes God's grace in our lives. Well, speaking of God's love, because that phrase has been so co-opted by the people leaning to the left, isn't it lovely that God just loves us so very much and he just loves us in such a lovely way? I mean, we, I think there's a, a, a sense in which we are afraid to do it because we don't want to sound like that. And like, like I said, we'll get more into it later. But I, we need to hear it. The gospel is God's act of love toward undeserving rebel sinners. So when we're, like I said, we defend the gospel and we should, with our dying breath, we should defend it and proclaim it. But at the same time, we who have been beneficiaries of it need to be reminded constantly that that was God's act of love. You know, the 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 uh, the more Arminian person loves to co-op John three sixteen and say, "Well, God, because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son." I would rather think if you stop and think about it for a second, God so loved the world. He loved. God does not, we don't deserve God's love. We deserve his wrath. Yet in his graciousness, he loved. We got to hear that, that he of his own free will chose to love rebel sinners and with no deserving of their own. Hey, brother. That is an amazing balm to your soul. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to add that in in the context of this discussion, um, we need to remember, too, that being in one body in Christ does not mean that we all experience the same mm-hmm. season at the same time. Just imagine if every Christian experienced suffering at the same time, there would be no brother or sister in Christ mm-hmm. to be there to comfort them. So the Lord allows these things to happen in his sovereignty where you may be going through a hard time and I'm not, so I can be there to comfort Mm -hmm. you so that when I'm going through a hard time, you'll be there to comfort me. And that's part of what the body of Christ does for one another among, you know, the, the body of Christ being among believers. But also in the concept you're talking about, trying to steer clear of that God loves you and has a wonderful plan of your life message that the world wants to hear because they don't want the truth about the other aspects of God's character and and his decrees. They don't want to hear about wrath or or Mm -hmm. sin. All they want to know is that, well, God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. Well, great. That's good. That's all I need to know. That's not the end of it. But we make a mistake of abandoning and talking and expressing the truth about God's love in our lives as true believers in Christ. And we're doing an injustice to portions of the body of Christ by doing that, because in Christ, God does love you. He loves you like he loves his son, Jesus Christ, because you are in Jesus Christ. You are in the agape love. You are still in under his divine love, meaning his divine grace upon the world in that aspect. He does love the world and does love everyone in the world because of his divine grace is evidence of that. 
Mm-hmm. And this discussion is not going to go into depths on the difference of how God loves the unsaved versus the way he loves those that are actually truly saved in Christ. I'll just leave it at that. There's a difference between agape love and divine grace and divine love mm-hmm. for his creation and his creatures. But as Christians, as those truly saved in Christ, we can never lose sight of the fact that God does love us as he loves his son because he looks at us and doesn't see our sin. He sees his son, Jesus Christ, in us. Amen. Amen. So let's take um, this section of J.C. Ryle's commentary that, that you sent. Uh, when you, <laughs> Rich, i tell you something, folks. If I send something to Rich, if I have a research department, it's Rich. I'll tell you this right now. The dude, the dude goes on a hunt, you know. So he'll send me like thirty things during the week. I'm like, okay, I've got to distill this down to what I can handle. So the 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 dude is my is the VOR research department. That's if if you want to ever applaud where we got stuff, it's rich. All right. So so this in this section, which is uh, dealing with verses 26 through 31 of Mark 14. Ryle writes, We see in these verses how well our Lord foreknew the weaknesses and infirmities of his disciples. He tells them plainly what they were going to do. Quote, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. End quote. So, stop right there. What's happening? This is prior to Christ being taken into custody. This is at, you know, this is the Last Supper. This is, you know, before they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, before his uh, uh, time of prayer. Where he, uh, he, you know, he prayed, "If it be your will, or let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless not my will, but your will be done." This is him talking to the disciples right before what he knows is about to happen goes down. So he tells Peter, in, uh, quoting Ryle again, he tells Peter in particular of the astounding sin of which he is about to commit this night before the cock crow. Thou, thou shalt, den- shalt deny me thrice. So again, stopping here. What is he telling the men who are his disciples, the men he calls friends, the, the apostles, the men, the sent out ones that would proclaim the gospel and, and it would be the, the bodies that he used for the birth of the church. He is telling them they are about to be neck deep in sin. Okay, And then Ryle goes on, Yet our Lord's foreknowledge did not prevent his choosing these 12 disciples to be his apostles. He knew what they were going to do. He knew what was going to ha- what how they were going to abandon him prior to the crucifixion. Yet he chose them. He allowed them to be his infam- intimate friends and companions, knowing perfectly well what they would do one uh, one day. Uh, what would bleh, pardon me? What they would one day do? There, got it right. He granted them the mighty privilege of being continually with him and hearing his voice with a clear foresight of the melancholy weakness and want of faith which they would exhibit at the end of his ministry. This is a remarkable fact and deserves to be had in continual remembrance. Stop there for just a second. In his gracious kindness, Christ chose those men whom he knew would abandon him. That's what Ryle is getting at. You know, To stop and think about it, when you, when you are faced with, you've sinned again, you've struggled in this again, whom did Christ choose to be his messengers after his ascension? The very men who abandoned him 
abandoned him. One of which denied him three times. Boldface lied to people's face. I don't know the man. He chose these men. Okay? Ryle goes on. Let us take comfort. And this is where we find our quote. Let us take comfort in the thought that the Lord Jesus does not cast off his believing people because of failures and imperfections. Read that as sins. He knows what they are. He takes them as the husband takes the wife with all their blemishes and defects and once joined to him by faith will never put them away. He is merciful and he is a merciful and compassionate high priest. It is to his glory to it is his glory to pass over the transgressions of his people and to cover their many sins. He knew what they were before conversion, wicked guilty and defiled, yet he loved them. He knows what they will be after conversion, weak, erring, and frail, yet he loves them. He has undertaken to save them, notwithstanding all their shortcomings. And he and what he has undertaken, he will perform. So stop and think about that. Christ did not cast off the apostles who abandoned him, who denied him, Christ does not cast you off because you've sinned. His love for you, just as when he looked at you before you were saved, wicked, guilty, and defiled, is the love he has for you now, weak, erring, and frail. His love doesn't change. It's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. I like what Let he said. Let me add something. Uh, go, go ahead. Hold your spot. Just put it in other words, what you just said. You are saved in Christ. There's nothing that can cause Christ or God to love you more or love you less than he does at this moment if you are truly saved. Meaning, he knows where you will stumble next week. He knows where you will fall next month. And he knows the sin you will possibly fall into six months from now, but that does not change the love he has for you because in Christ, we, and as long as we're in this flesh, we will fall into sin from time to time. We will struggle, but we have to remember no matter how faithless we feel, God's faithfulness will remain and is unchanged. But sadly in this flesh that we walk, that is our earthly tent more times than not, we all, look more like the Israelites, the Hebrews wandering through the desert, knowing that the promised land was coming, but we're too focused on our situation, complaining about the heat, complaining about a lack mm -hmm. of water, complaining about a variety of food, looking back to Egypt, thinking, well, maybe we should have never, never left Egypt. Look at this hardship we're facing. But we have to remember and focus where our hope is at. Yeah. We have to look towards what our promise is in, and that's glorification in Christ, with Christ, in heaven for all eternity. Nothing yeah, will amen. rip you away from the Father's hand. Nothing will change the love the Father has for you in Christ. Amen. Amen. This one, uh, just we're not going to go through all of this in the commentary, but we'll put the link in the show notes. I just want to cover this last chapter, uh, not chapter, sorry, paragraph. He says, 
let us learn a chapter. We'd be here for a long night. Okay, so let us learn to pass a charitable judgment on the conduct of professing believers. Let us not set them down in a low place and say they have no grace because we see in them much weakness and corruption. Uh, that, Rich, I think is something we got to be, especially in the days of social media. Um, I think there is a sense in which, and I, I, we're all guilty of it. I've done it myself. Um, we don't share great, show a lot of grace to people that may have a poor understanding of the scriptures, yet are new in the faith. Um, don't understand their failings, don't understand the need for repentance, yet these are saved Christians. And, and we can be very harsh with them. Or we can be very demanding uh, about their need to be in, 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 in that constant ongoing repentance, which all Christians need to be. What does he say? Don't set them down in a low place. Don't say that, you know, don't say they have no grace because we see these weakness and corruptions. He goes on to say, let us remember that our master in heaven bears with their infirmities and let us try to bear with them too. The church of Christ is little better than a great hospital. We ourselves are all more or less weak and all daily, all daily need the skillful treatment of the heavenly physician. There will be no complete cures till the resurrection day. This is why we need to hear this, this compassion of this compassionate and loving God. Because every one of us is in some stage of ailment in this great grand hospital that is this world that God is working us through. And because of his love, he is steadfastly working in and through us to heal us of our infirmities. And we're to bear with one another. And Rich, I think this is one of those times when <coughs> the, excuse me, the body of Christ needs to be so... Yes, we need to be so much preaching about repentance, so much preaching about holiness and righteousness because that is what we are called to be in Christ. But we also need to remind our brethren how desperately we need to hear about the love of God. I mean, think about it. If, if, according to what Ryle says, and I like that Grace, that Grace Gems, uh, that I found this ch that this one paragraph chunk there, but you found the full thing in, in, in the uh, studylight.org. Uh, website, they they threw a couple of verses that substantiate what um, what Ryle is saying here uh, in Philippians one six. Be being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So God is constantly working in us. Why would He spend so much time working in us and, and where He up to the point that He completes it when on the, uh, when Christ returns and set up, sets up the new heavens and new earth? Why? Because of His great love. He, Jesus tells His disciples in John chapter ten verses twenty seven to twenty eight, "My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me." I give them what eternal life and they will never perish ever. No one can snatch them out of my hand. So here we are, just like the disciples, bumbling and fumbling our way through this life. Before we were in Christ, we were rank rebels, deserving of nothing but wrath. And yet in his compassion and his love, he redeems us and gives us eternal life. And then he spends a lifetime 
working in and through us, conforming us to the image of Christ. Leading us in the ways of righteousness and holiness. We'll never perish from his hand. I'm sorry, I, for those people who say, well, maybe nobody can pluck him out of his hand, but, but you can jump out. Really? Really? Stop and think about this. They will, what? Never perish, ever. God's love is so grand, so gracious, so awesome and powerful that if he has redeemed you, you're not getting away from him. No matter what you do. Now, we'll get into the people who go, but, 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 trust me, we're going there. We're going to talk about that. But if you're genuinely in Christ, he can't, nobody can take you. You're his. And he did it. Why? Why did he do it? Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps, <coughs> or a good person, one would even dare to die. But God, what? Shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were still, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to the God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Why did He do this? Because He shows His love for us. Now, there are many verses that talk about the fact that God demonstrates that he is glorified by the salvation of his saints. So he is glorified for what he does. But God did this because of his love for us. So it's both. Okay, God is glorified by the salvation of every undeserved uh, wretch. No question. But he also loves every undeserved wretch that he redeems. If he did this because of his love for you. And you will never perish and never be snatched out of his hand. And if he has promised that he will carry on his work in you until the day of Christ's return. Rich, I cannot think of a more comforting and soothing balm to the soul that Christ loves us. That even Brother, when we are a mess, he loves us. We, we, we need to also remember something else. That during the time in the garden when everyone fled, when Peter denied Christ, yes, he knew what they would do and he knew what would happen. But we actually have something that they did not have in the garden. And that was the gift of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit that Christ sent on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit that indwelt Paul when he wrote in Philippians, for me to, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The Holy Spirit that was gifted to him, guess what? That is the exact same Holy Spirit that is gifted to us today when we are made one in Christ, when we are born again in Christ. It is the exact same Holy Spirit. 
we have access to the same thing all the disciples and all the Christians had throughout the New Testament, the the same Holy Spirit that helped Paul and gave Paul strength through all of his shipwrecks, beatings, everything that he endured. We have access to the exact same Holy Spirit that is there to help us and comfort us when we plead and reach out to Christ. And I know there's a lot of different tangents we could take. And yes, if we sin and fall into sin, Christ will discipline us. But even that is because he loves us and wants us to live in a way that glorifies him. We, we discipline children because we love them, not because we want them to act right or act better. But our discipline is for their good and for their protection, just like when Christ disciplines us. It's like when we discipline one of our own children, it's because he loves us. And he want, he knows what's best. He knows what's going to happen a year from now. He knows what we will be dealing with a year from now. He knows how he will use the suffering in our life down the road to glorify himself and bring in comfort to someone else. Yeah. Um, I'm going to jump ahead just briefly. Yeah. There's another link I want you to add, but since you just mentioned the death of Christ on the cross, um, this is a, the show link will be from a sermon by John MacArthur. And he, he touches on these same precepts, but at a little bit different angle. And he wrote that, well, I'm not going to read the entire sermon, of course. It's just a couple of very short paragraphs. But I would encourage the listeners to click that link and either listen to the sermon or read the transcript of the ser- sermon. But John MacArthur was saying, now, all of that simply says that suffering is the path to glory. It's the path to victory. It's the path to purity. It's the path to blessing. It's the path to eternal blessing. And the greatest illustration of this is the cross, because the cross was the greatest act of suffering in history. Is that not so? It was the greatest suffering that anyone has ever gone through. It was the greatest pain, and I don't simply mean the pain of scourging. A lot of people were scourged. I mean the pain of sin-bearing by a sinless one, the pain of death by the author of life, the pain of hatred by the one who was love, the pain of alienation from the Father by the one who was one with the Father for all eternity. There was no suffering even close to that. That was the greatest experience of suffering by anyone who ever lived, and out of it came the greatest triumph. Is that not so? And that's Peter's whole point, and he's referring to, I think it's First Peter. But in, I'm skipping ahead in this transcript, but I just wanted to bring this point out. In this case, meaning Christ's suffering on a cross, he leaves you an example. He leaves you an example. In the middle of the suffering, he committed no sin. He didn't get angry at God. He didn't become unrighteous. He didn't start doing wrong. He didn't collapse under the suffering. He never said anything at all that was any way sinful. There was no deceit in his mouth. And while he was being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He just kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And there's the principle, folks. Listen, when you go through suffering, do what Jesus did. 
Don't sin with your mouth or any other way. Don't get angry. Don't revile. Don't seek vengeance. Don't utter threats. Just trust yourself in the care of God because God has already proven that in the worst possible suffering, he achieves the greatest end, and that's the point. There he was in verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Brother, is that not just amazing? That that That's why I, I think when we hear someone want to corrupt the word of God and say, God sent Jesus so that you'll have comfort in this world, we should rightly get angry. Because what you just articulated and what you shared from MacArthur, that is the glory of the gospel. That he did all this for us, for his, for his bride. I can't think of a message that brings greater comfort because we are so focused on this world, about our time in this world, about what we're enduring in this world. We miss this. We miss what this glorious message, this promise, and what it cost means. You know, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 tells us, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ because of his mercy, because of his love. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the uh, coming ages, he might show the, uh, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Rich, I think, as you said, is there a more, uh, is there a more amazing message? I, I, I would argue there is no more amazing message than the love of God poured out on guilty sinners and then not just say, loving us enough to save us and now we got to kind of keep him appeased. Rather, it is an ongoing love. It never changes. And in the coming ages, we will still consider, continue to see his love as his grace and his kindness is demonstrated. There's no more amazing message than the genuine love of God. Not the, the worldly love, the, this love that, that winks at sin. This love that you know says, I'll make things better for you. I'll give you 12 steps to a better marriage, 6 steps to better kids. Not that kind. That's not love. That's appeasement. That's like giving your kids what they want so they'll be quiet. No, this is a love that says, I love you so much that I will redeem you out of what you were and where you were headed. I will sit you in my house, make you my child. I will continue to form and conform you 
I will set you apart for my use so that I can pour out my riches and my grace and my mercy and my kindness on you for eternity. Psalm 86 verse 5 says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in what? Steadfast love to all who call upon you. Not love that wavers, it's steadfast. Verse 15 in the same psalm, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Christian, there's nothing we do that changes that. We can't make God love us less. Me, a couple of things I, I would like to cover, and I'll start with this. And Rich, jump in wherever you need, man, because I'll just keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> Interrupt me at any point, because you know me. I just open. I open my mouth, and I keep going longer than I should. So I want to. I want to cover some some things that are assurances for us when we're talking about the love of God. First thing, God's love has no preconditions. There's nothing that I bring to the table that God expects of me to merit his love. In fact, I can't. There's no way I can merit God's love because prior to his love being poured out upon me, the only thing I merit is his wrath. Rebel sinners don't get the eternal saving love of God. Okay? If you if you die outside of Christ, you don't get the eternal saving love of God. You get his wrath. So God himself has to reach into time and space and change me. Because I can only warrant his wrath. And I'm sorry, this is going to make some people mad. Guess what? There's nothing about me that I'm special enough to figure that out on my own. I can't exercise my own faith because I don't have it. I'm a rebel sinner. I deserve hell. I can do nothing to merit God's wrath. I didn't choose him of my own accord. It is his gracious kindness, his love that reaches down into a dead man's soul and brings it to life. And yep, I'm going to get some people who are going, you're being a Calvinist. Yes. Yes, I am. And I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm not going to soften that. That is God's amazing grace. That he took a dead man's soul and gave it life. Because I deserve his wrath. God demonstrated his love based upon his gracious kindness and mercy. So if I can't merit his love, I can't expect that I deserve it. I can't do anything to earn it, so why should I think I, I should deserve it? This is one of the worst things that seeker-friendlyism has done to the gospel. That somehow you are deserving of love. So we're going to make you feel loved. We're going to make you feel uh, just how special you are. Why on earth would I expect God's love? I've shaken my fist at him all of my life. In fact, a rebel sinner doesn't want the love of God. The rebel sinner wants a God-shaped 
in his own image that will love him with the way he already loves himself. I can't merit it, so I shouldn't expect it. I can only merit his wrath. So when he extends his love and he redeems you, guess what? You didn't deserve it. That's actual love. That is a love that we cannot replicate on the scale that God does in this life. We can see hints of it. When your child utterly disobeys you, yet you protect your child. You care for your child. That's a, that's a glimpse. That's a glimpse of what God does. We're utterly undeserving of the love. It's His mercy. It's His grace. That's the only way you can explain why we receive that love. So if God grants his love by his mercy, guess what I can't do to it? I can't get rid of it. Because I didn't do anything to get it. I shook my fist at God. I tried to tear him off his throne and sit there myself. He redeemed me. He loved me. How on earth am I going to take that and get rid of it after he changes me? I'm a worse sinner in the sense that outside of Christ, I was condemned to hell. In Christ, I'm his son. I'm his adopted son. You are his adopted child. You're not necessarily not sinning or somehow God goes, eh, not a big deal. It's still sin. All sin is horrible. But how can you say that as a vile, wretched rebel... When he reached into your soul and made a dead man alive by his love and his grace, how can you think that his love is affected now that you're his child? There's nothing you or I can do to add or take away from his love. God loved me despite what I brought to the table, despite what you brought to the table. Think about that for a minute. You bring nothing to make you lovable. Yet he poured his grace on you. And he adopted you and made you his child. And now he's changed you. He set you apart for his service. And he is conforming you to the image of Christ. Why would you think now that you could do something different to make him love you less or you're less deserving of his love. You were never deserving to begin with. Since I cannot add or take away from his love, guess what that does for me? That changes everything. Think about it. If you think you have to somehow keep God loving you, and we do this. We do this all the time. We, we have a, a good week. We studied our Bible every day. We prayed every day. We got to work on time. We didn't yell at the kids. We didn't kick the dog. And when things, we had rough days, we handled it 
the way Christ com- commands us to. We had a good week. And we think, wow, I, God is really working in me. I, I must really uh, you know, be learning something because, man, I've, this week has gone so well. Next week comes, the bills are late, got a late fee, battery on the car died, and I kicked the tire. By the way, that happened because uh, I was angry. <laughs> um, thankfully, it didn't break a toe. So, got upset at work because I didn't like what they were doing there. The kids were being disobedient, so you yell at them. The dog just won't leave you alone, so you shove them away. You, you maybe looked at your Bible twice out of the whole week. What do we do? We skulk away. We're afraid to, to pray. We're afraid to open our Bibles. We're afraid to tell anybody. Why? It's a, a, a tacit admission. We think God loves us less. I was really good last week. I messed this week up in ways I can't begin to explain. I have to hide my face from God because I'm ashamed. And it's this tacit admission that I think I haven't, that, that God loves me less. But this changes everything. This changes everything. If God's love does not change, if J.C. Ryle presents it correctly, and I believe he does, that when he saved us, it before we came to him, we were wick, wicked, guilty, defiled, and yet he loved us. And when after we're saved, we're weak, erring, and frail, yet he loves us. This changes everything. Because guess what I don't have to do anymore? I don't have to merit his love. I don't have to... Hey, brother. I, I, just one sec. I don't have to do anything... To feel that I am loved of God. It changes how I serve him. Go ahead, brother. Now, on the flip side of that, that bad week example you gave, Mm -hmm. where a person may skulk away and not want to read their Bible and feel ashamed, guess what? You're showing progressive sanctification because it's the person seared in their sin that are possibly not even truly saved, that would not even consider mm-hmm. the fact that they have disappointed the Father in Heaven, just like a small child might feel like they've disappointed their mommy or daddy. You feel that guilt. Guess what? That means you are actually in progressive sanctification because part of that is learning and understanding that when we have a bad week, that we have not relied completely on Christ like we should have, that we haven't been to him in prayer like we should have, that we have not been in our Bible like we should have, but yet we feel remorse over that, you can take joy in that remorse because that means you are truly saved in Christ because you love Christ and you want to desire to live a life holy and pleasing to him. We will never do that perfectly while we walk this earth. But as we grow in understanding and seeing our own sinfulness and seeing our own failures and realizing that we can never live up to the standard that Christ puts on us, but we can strive toward, towards it with his help and through the Holy Spirit and in God the Father. Guess what? That means you're actually growing in grace. You're growing in understanding. You're growing in maturity. I would be worried if a Christian mm-hmm. never 
told me what you just said. Yeah. I would be worried if a Christian says, it doesn't matter whether I pray or not. It doesn't matter whether I read the Bible or not. It doesn't matter whether I go to church or not. I'm saved because someone told me to, and I can go about living my life any way I want. No. Those times that you feel like that is actually evidence that you truly are a child of God because you are more worried about displeasing the Father than you are in displeasing those around you. Amen. And that is something we should rejoice in. Amen. We should rejoice in it. And, and that's the thing. I mean, a child of God desires to serve his Savior. Desires to. But what changes is that we don't disappoint him. We should grieve our sin, as you're saying, Rich. You know, Paul tells the Romans, should we go ahead and sin so grace can abound? Assuredly not. How can we who have been slaves to sin, who are, or how can we who are slaves of Christ now be you know slaves to sin again? Very badly paraphrased. Sorry, I don't have my, I don't have the passage open. I'm sorry. Um, we don't dishonor what Christ has done by living in sin, and when we do sin, it should grieve us. But not for the reason that we think we've failed to merit his love. And I, I can promise you, nobody, everyone within the sound of my voice here is going, well, I don't think, I never voiced the concern, well, I think God loves me less today. That's why I say it's a tacit admission. It should, it should grieve us that we did not spend time in his word. It should grieve us that we haven't prayed. It should grieve us when we sin in anger. But because we have dishonored the work of Christ and gone back into slavery to sin rather than being freed in Christ to serve him. And so when I say this changes everything, let me explain why. I'm called to honor and obey Christ. I'm called to grow in holiness, to be conformed to his image, to walk in righteousness, and to proclaim the gospel. So that's what I'm called to do. Now, can I do that, Rich? Can I do any of that apart from Christ? No. Exactly. Absolutely not. Absolutely. Because apart from Christ, I can do nothing to please God because I'm a rebel sinner dead in my trespasses and sins. This is one of those things that the easy believism nonsense, and I'm going to call it that, nonsense, does not, or it fails to understand. You cannot, as a dead in your trespasses and sins, an enslaved person to sin, can do nothing to please God. I cannot grow in holiness. I cannot walk in righteousness. I cannot be conformed to the image of Christ. So because of God's love, this is what changes everything. I have been saved and I've been changed. See, scripture tells us that we are a new creation. That God has taken our heart of stone and get out and given us a heart of flesh. See, God's love didn't just change my status. I didn't go from column A, condemned to hell, to column B, going to heaven. That's not what happened here. There is a complete physical supernatural change. I am no longer a dead in sin wretched, vile sinner. I am a alive in Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 
child of God. I am a new creation. Now, because of his love, I can honor and obey him because he has enabled me to do so. It's his work. I couldn't do it before. I had no ability. And in truth, I had no desire. But in Christ, because of this supernatural change, because of this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, I am enabled so that I can serve him freely. See, I'm serving him not to merit hit anything from him. I am serving him because I have been conformed to him. Because he loved me and changed me. It's his work that enables me. It's his love that is without conditions. So I can now serve him and guess what? I don't have to do. I don't have to fear him when I fail. Christ made it clear we will sin. We are still in this world. We are still in this flesh. That's why scripture tells us that when we sin, we have an advocate at the right hand of God, namely Jesus Christ our Lord, interceding for us. Christian, when you sinned today, who had the ear of the Father? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Your Savior is currently interceding for you because he loves you. So guess what you don't have to do? Every one of us has had a parent we had to kind of smooth things over after we made them upset, right? So we think in our, all right, I really messed it up this week. I, I, got, I got to do better next week. Well, repent of your sin, of course. But it's not about trying to smooth things over with your heavenly father. You don't have to. Because he's already and continues to love you. Now you can serve him freely. And when you sin, you can repent knowing that he still loves you. That didn't change. It is because he loves you that you desire to change. Because you couldn't do it before on your own. You might have said, man, I make some bad choices in life. And, and, and man, my relationships have gone, haven't gone well. And man, I, I just can't seem to do too well at my job. I, and so we've tried to make these superficial worldly changes. But usually because we see some benefit. But we have a different reason that we change. We repent. We turn from these sins. It's not to merit something for ourselves. And it's not to please the Father in the sense that we got to smooth out our relationship with Him because now He's angry with us. Like we had with a mom or dad or a sibling or school teacher or, or a boss. Because His love doesn't change. That's why Christ continually intercedes. Not because He's trying to calm God down, but because He loves you and He, is, he and the Father are united as, as one God. Two persons, one God. 
united in their love for you. So Rich, before I go on to why I think we sometimes fear getting into this topic, anything else before I go too far and cut you off, anything else you wanted to bring into that? Well, not really. I agree with everything that you said, and it was absolutely beautiful and Christ-honoring, and it was really amazing, brother. Um, one thing we need to remember, too, I saw this come across, I think it was Facebook today, and it said, on average, a human takes 23,000 breaths a day. 23,000 Breathing in and breathing out 23 times a day. So remember, if God doesn't do anything else but give you breath today for 23,000 times, you have a reason to praise him. Because every breath is a gift from God. Every day is a gift from God. Every moment of your life in this world is a gift from God. And why? Because in Christ, he loves you. One thing I want to mention before I forget, and you may be going to lead into some of this, but this was something I read, and it was also by J.C. Ryle, and I apologize. I don't remember where I saw this. It was probably from his book, Holiness, because I've been going through that this year. I'm on my second pass <laughs> through it now, but it was one section of this that really jumped out that I bookmarked, and J.C. Ryle wrote, there is but one hope that has roots, life, strength, and solidity. And that is the hope which is built on the great rock of Christ's work and office as man's redeemer. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3.11 He that buildeth on this cornerstone shall not be confounded. About this hope there is reality. It will bear looking at and handling. It will meet every inquiry. Search it through and through, and you will find no flaw whatever in it. All other hopes besides this are worthless. Like summer dried fountains, they fail man just when his need is the sorest. They are like unsounded, they are like unsound ships, which look well so long as they lie quiet in harbor. But when the winds and the waves of ocean begin to try them, their rotten condition is discovered, and they seek beneath the waves. There is no such thing as a good hope without Christ, and without Christ is to have no hope at all. Ephesians 2.12. Amen. Amen. All right, so earlier I mentioned, and I can kind of feel the vibrations of <laughs> some of our listeners can almost feel you haven't even heard this podcast yet it hasn't dropped yet it's going to but i can feel the vibrations already from some people chris you're talking about the love rich you guys are talking about god's love and you're making it sound like it doesn't matter if you see it just it's all love and all grace and it doesn't matter you can't be doing that hold on this is where i want to get into why i think we as Christians, especially those who are concerned about the defense of the true biblical gospel and about growing in Christ, growing in holiness. So hang in there for just a few seconds, okay? So, 
with regard to the concern about focusing on the love of God. Rich, I think one of the reasons we fear this is we are really worried about that that very issue, that we are worried people will take from it, well, if it's all about God's love and it's all about God's grace, then you can't tell me I need to be obedient to God because it doesn't matter, right? I mean, if I sin and I had Jesus Christ the righteous is interceding for me, then it doesn't really matter. Let me let me address that. That's what we call being antinomian. It's meaning no law. That the law of God has no you know nothing to do with the gospel it has nothing to do with the uh, being uh, and it has you know it has no place in the life of a christian etc absolutely absolute bunk okay antinomianism is a false teaching and i understand why a lot of us cringe at the idea of preaching on the love of god you want to watch or see a really good example of how that hyper focus on the love of God can take you wide astray look no further than the grandson of uh, of I think it was Billy Graham Tullian Chavidgin Tullian had some really interesting teachings on the love of God but some people early on were concerned about where he was taking it and that they that it was sounding antinomian and after a while that became very very prevalent and the further he went astray, the further his antinomian began to become antinomianism began to be revealed. So you ever want to kind of get an idea of what this hyper focus can cause? Just look at Tully and Chavidjan. So I get it. I get what we're, we're we're concerned about. We recognize that God's word calls us to holiness. We are commanded to walk in Christ. Christ says, "You can't." You know, why do you say? That you love me, but you do not obey what I tell you. Okay, He commands us to do things. Yet we claim to love him, but if we reject obeying him, how can we claim to love him? Right? That is what scripture tells us. When we live in sin, and I'm not talking about falling into sin, go to first John. You know, anyone who practices sin makes a practice of sin, makes it their lifestyle of sin. <clears throat> They are lying when they say they are of Christ. Okay, it, To live in sin is a mockery of the gospel. And what it actually reveals is we are not saved. In fact, we are still enslaved to sin. <clears throat> so this idea of antinomianism is a real thing. It's a real concern in the, in the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of the love of God. There is a reason to be concerned when we talk about Focusing on the love of God and realizing there is a danger that if we don't preach the whole counsel of God, that we can go astray. I get it. So, when we look at some churches today, especially in the these liberal churches, these progressive churches, you take something like the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, <clears throat> hyper-focused on grace, hyper-focused on grace. Like, if it's all grace, then it doesn't matter, let's say, about, <coughs> excuse me, sexual mor uh, immorality. That's terrible. You can't tell people that they have to be uh, celibate, excuse me, that they have to be committed to one man, one woman in marriage. Uh, that's, that's, that's horrible. That's unloving. You're, you know, God's grace covers all of that. So we, we love everyone, right? We see this. 
It actually happens. In fact, there are people today who so hate the idea of telling a person, repent and believe the gospel. Those are Christ's words, by the way. To tell them to repent. Oh, that's works. You're telling them to do something. You're saved by grace. You can't tell people to obey. That's works. It, when a person does that, they are rejecting the totality of Scripture. They are focusing solely on certain areas of Scripture and rejecting the rest. As if to say, well, because it's by grace, all this doesn't matter. Absolutely wrong. Total garbage. Works are not what merit our salvation. Works are not what causes God to love us. However, as we said before, they are a product of it. When you are saved by the love of God, Christian, He changed you. He made you into something new. A new creation. New hearts. New desires. That's what we received. So when we're saved and we're changed... We desire to love and obey God. That's part of it. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So antinomianism just rejects all that. Casts it to the side. But if we are genuinely changed, if we are given a new heart with new desires, and we are called to be obedient to Christ, then the totality of Scripture's message is that the gospel is the love of God poured out on the heart, uh, the wicked hearts of sinners who are then transformed into new creations who then desire to love and obey Jesus Christ. And guess what they then do? Obey the word of God in its totality. That is how we address the issue of antinomianism. We preach it all. We don't preach select portions to tickle the ears of false believers. We don't reject the truth that God has, guess what, commanded you to walk in holiness. We are telling you that the most wonderful thing you can do is to reject sin from which you have been purchased and bought and you can embrace Christ who is your who is the fountain of your salvation who has made you into a new being and is your savior and you are adopted into his family and you are the son or daughter of God a hyper focus on the teaching of the love of God, will reject that. A hyper-focus will cause you to think how you live after you profess Christ doesn't matter. And yet it was Christ himself who said there will be those on on the day of judgment, who will say, well, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this, that, and the other thing? And he said, he's going to say what? Away from you, away from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. So the antidote to my friends who are vibrating <laughs> in their chairs, I'm sure they're like, but, but, <coughs> because I, we feel it too, Rich, and I feel it too. The antidote to that hyper-focus is that we have to preach the whole counsel of God. 
we don't stop preaching this amazing love of God because we're afraid that people will embrace an antinomian position. If we preach to them the whole counsel of God, not only will they be crushed by the weight of God's love, but the only right response is to worship Him and to obey Him in love. Right, Rich? Absolutely, brother. And you put all of that so biblically and beautifully, I cannot even express in words at the moment what great a job you did in explaining that because um, like we were saying earlier, in our human fallen nature, even after we're saved, we still have a tendency to veer one way or to veer the other. And without preaching the entire, the whole counsel of God, we will be guilty of doing that. I myself, I know that at times I've caught myself leaning too hard one way or leaning too hard the other way. And the more that I read and grow in understanding, the more I see that, you know, it's not just focus on this or just focus on this. It's focus on the entire counsel of God because, you know, I, and, and I have caught myself doing it in the past, not speaking on the love of God enough, but focusing at times more on the repentance and faith portions of Scripture, probably more than the love of God. And there are different reasons why I've allowed myself to do that or I fall fell into doing that. But a lot of it has to do with what you said, that part of the problem when we speaking or preaching or talking about the love of God, especially among professing believers today, it's because, one thing, we don't know whether these people are truly saved or not. And unless you're truly saved in Christ, this conversation does not apply to you. Yeah. And people will take terms and expressions, especially when you use the word love, and they don't apply it biblically in their life or the lives of those around them, but they apply it in the way that they determine what love truly means. They don't look at it as Christ defines it. They look at it the way the world defines it, the way they want it defined because the world will say, well, if you truly love someone, you should want them to be happy. If you truly love someone, you shouldn't speak against what they're doing. If you truly love someone, you shouldn't say that what they believe is unscriptural. But that goes against what the Bible teaches us. And sadly, if there's any one aspect in biblical truth that may be more misunderstood than anything else in today's world, it is true biblical love and what that looks like, brother. Amen. Amen. So let, let's leave you with one last thought. Um, with regard to Christian, you, you, you are now hearing again about the love of God, that he, his love for you is complete and total. It's without condition. He redeemed you. He purchased you. 
He's changed you. He's given you a heart that desires to serve him. And it's a heart that grieves when you sin and fail. Yet you are free because you do not have to merit his love. You do not have to improve upon your position with him by your obedience. So your obedience is now an act of worship of a loving God who you realize has given everything for you because it cost him his son to pay the price for you. What do you do? What do you do with that knowledge? Well, you know that since you are redeemed and you are loved, you then seek to obey Christ freely in all things and with joy. I mean, think about it. You were purchased, redeemed, and made a child of God. What more joyous thing can there be that you will spend eternity with your Savior? So when you seek to obey Christ, it's not a burden. It's not a task to achieve something. It's not to please him in the sense that you're trying to merit more love. You get to do this joyfully and freely because you are worshiping the one who purchased you. We can't be rejected by him. We can't be unloved. We can't be hated because God would be found to be a liar. And again, as Rich said, this is to people who are genuinely in Christ. This is not to the person who rejects the idea that they, you know, that they have to be obedient to Christ. They'd rather just live in sin and somehow purchase their fire insurance. Guess what? This doesn't apply to you. You're not in Christ. You've rejected the gospel. You've stayed dead in your sins and you just want him to make you feel better. But the person genuinely in Christ, he won't reject you. Christ himself said they can't, that can't happen. If it happened, he'd be a liar. And if he's a liar, he's not God. So rather than try to seek or seeking to try and prove to God that you should be loved or somehow improve your relationship with him. And by the way, when you sin, it's going to it should grieve you. We should seek to repent of it. But when we do, it's not because we want a better opinion of ourselves or of our relationship, but we are repenting of sin because we're repenting of what we've done against the one who loved us so graciously. We obey not as a matter or a point of pride or being able to say, look, I'm doing better, some chart on a graph. But rather, it's so that we demonstrate our desire to love through thought, word, and deed the one who's been so kind to us. When we fail, it, repentance isn't a matter of trying to prove ourselves to God, but his love motivates us to be like Christ, the one who saved us. Think about it. Why would you want to live in a way that cost the one who redeemed us so much? Why would you desire to rebel against that very love that he's extended to you? Repentance is you demonstrating your love for God in worship by conforming yourself to Christ. You're just, show, you're just loving God. That's what repentance is. It's loving God. It's conforming yourself to him. It's obeying him because you want to be like the one who redeemed you. Out of love. That is an act of love. 
God's love frees us. It doesn't burden us. It doesn't shackle us. His love gives the power, gives us the power and the ability to live freely in God's grace. So if you really want to exemplify God's love for us, then you're going to live without fear and you're going to love him in return for his gracious love and you're going to seek to live in such a way that you honor him and that you worship him out of a genuine desire to worship him because of what he's done for you. That's what we do with this knowledge. It comforts us because we can't lose his love. It cost him Jesus' death on the cross, but he died for our sins, was yet resurrected so that we have, a, uh, have access to the throne of grace. He defeated sin and death for us. That is immensely comforting. And he, it cannot be taken from you. It cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. It cannot be more. It cannot be less. It is perfect. And so when you walk through your life in this coming week, and by the way, we're doing this on a Saturday night. Some of you probably won't hear this until later in the week. But if you happen to hear it, maybe you're listening on to the way of the church, or maybe you, you listen to it tonight because some of you download really fast right away. Um, when you go to church, either tomorrow or next week, let that love that he's poured out on you be transform your worship into an act of love to him. It's not just simply singing the song so we can get to the next part. It's not just sitting there to take notes so you get all the theology points right. It is an act of worship. All of it. Let that transform you. Let that make you the work that you do this week be this joyous act. And when you are confronted, as we talked about a couple of programs ago, with suffering, guess what? Your suffering didn't change God's love. He's loving you in the midst of that suffering. Did he allow it? Did he bring it? Yes. Does he still love you? Yes. It didn't change. Not one bit. Rich, any last thoughts before we let everybody go? Well, there, there were a few things, but I'm, I'm going to save it for a future episode. But I just want to remind our listeners of this, that proclaiming the way of salvation is a, one of the greatest expressions of your love in Christ. Because to truly love Christ means to love those dead in sin enough to proclaim his way of salvation to them so that through the preaching of the gospel of Christ, they may come to be known by Christ as his adopted children. Evangelism is an endeavor by us, but it, it's God blessing us and using us to proclaim his truths to a lost and dying world. Amen. So whatever you do this week, make it a point to proclaim the gospel at least once a day. Amen. Amen. Well, folks, thank you for spending your time with us this week. We really, truly hope this message has encouraged you. Um, when I saw that quote from Ryle, that certainly was, as I said, it was a balm to my soul. 
Um, and as I sat there and kind of thought tonight about how I wanted to articulate this, um, I just wanted to encourage you that in your obedience to Christ, you're not looking to um, improve your relationship with Him. You can't. It's you don't. You're not going to change your relationship with Him. You're not going to improve anything. You're going to smooth anything out. It's already utterly perfect. Now you just reflect that in what you do next. I pray that's a comfort to you. And as my brother said, that message, what better th message could you share with the world around you? What better message can you give to others than about the love of Jesus Christ? Go out there and proclaim it somehow to someone. Thank you for being with us this week. We really appreciate your time. We look forward to talking to you guys next time. God bless you guys. Good night. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.